this morning I want to I want to continue in looking into truths, foundational truths that are at the very heart of what we believe um, about who God is, about our salvation. Things that are distinctly Christian. We can we can give lessons on, we can preach, we can study things that are not distinctly Christian and that other religions believe as well. But the nature of truth is distinct. And so it is with our understanding of God. God has specifically revealed Himself. You know, remember in the the lessons on the on the Trinity. We don't believe in God in general. Um, and so uh, I want to look with you at the goodness and greatness of God. The goodness and greatness of God. And I don't want to just look at a list of acts that God has done to show His goodness and then another list of God's act that, acts that show His greatness. I want to look with you at the relationship of the two, the relationship of His goodness and His greatness together in God. Okay? And I believe that it's important because that's the very thing that Satan wants to target in our belief. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. Um, so, let me, just, let me just pray one more time. Father, in, in participation with my brother's prayer, we ask that you would give us wisdom. Help us to grow in our faith in you and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so God's goodness and greatness. You can think of these as category categories of attributes, okay? So in, in the realm of God's goodness goodness, you have all sorts of expressions. His love, his mercy, his kindness, his gentleness, his grace. His generosity is at the very heart of what God's goodness is. And then God's greatness. As distinct, and, and throughout Christian history, this is what theologians have made this distinction of God's goodness and greatness. God's greatness is... Can, can you all think of examples? Anyone want to give an example of God's greatness? His sovereignty, his rule and authority, his power, his knowledge and wisdom. Okay? What is God's goodness? Let's hone in on this category of attributes. God's goodness. God's goodness is the generosity of God. The benevolence of God. That he gives life. He's the life giver. He loves 
It is, at the heart of it, a bestowal of His abundance. Okay? It shows that He is the fountain. That He gives of Himself. And this is what we've already seen in the relations of the Trinity. But go with you, if you will, go to Jeremiah 31. And we have a clear definition, God's definition of His own goodness. In 31 verse 12. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Okay, this is just context. This is that new covenant, okay, which God has been promising. There's a finality to this covenant. He's going to bring a great salvation. Okay, and so what are they singing about in the height of Zion? It says, the next phrase, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Okay, what is his goodness? For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. There it is, says the Lord. This is definitive when we hear the goodness of God. The Lord is good. It speaks of His lavish generosity, His His super abounding abundance that He shares. Okay? Goodness. And we look at the creation of the world. Right? The Lord made and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. What was not good? Man was alone. He didn't have something that the Lord would give to him. Gave him a wife. And it was good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. So, this is God's goodness. And I, 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 I want to also show that this goodness is no different than his moral goodness. Okay, now we think of good and evil. Okay? Good and evil. What's good? This. What what God has shown in creation. Now look at the law. Don't murder. What's the opposite of that? Give life. To be to be like God is to give life. What's the fulfillment of the law? Love. Love. Give of yourself in love. This is God's goodness, okay? And it really should shape our understanding of righteousness, of the law, 
true righteousness. Okay? Now, what is God's greatness? Oh, by the way, God isn't evil. And therefore, all God's works are good. Every single one. Okay? All of them. Now, what is God's greatness? To have your minds make the distinction, it's helpful to think of quantity rather than quality. Okay? Great were the waters of the north. Well, what is that saying? Many. There are many waters, right? Or great was the river. The great had a, the river had a strong current and there was many waters, okay? Greatness has to do with bigness, might, power, status, authority, sovereignty. God's greatness has to do with his status of authority and his ability to do all that he purposes. Okay? Let's look at another place in Scripture. Isaiah 46, verse 9, where we see God's greatness. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He knows all things. And He has the ability to do all that He purposes. I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. This is God's greatness. God closes doors that no man can open. And he opens doors that no man can close. He says it, and it happens. Let there be, and it was. This is God's greatness. Okay? Now, the relationship of the two. Now this is important because Satan is crafty. Okay? God is not... We can think about God's goodness and greatness in some very impersonal ways. Okay? In non-Trinitarian ways. And guess what? The Muslim, the Jew, would be like, Amen. 
Okay? In two steps, we'll look at this relationship. Okay? Two steps. The first step, it's very important. Imagine one without the other. Okay? Now, imagine God is good, but God isn't sovereign. Would that be good news? Absolutely not. You couldn't trust that God, even though He was sincere. He would have no power to save you. Or maybe He could sometimes. Okay? Think about God is great. God is sovereign. But He's not good. You couldn't trust a God like that. And if any, even if He did show goodness sometimes, it wouldn't be really for your good. It would be for Him. Okay? A selfish God, in other words. So these two are inseparable and we should never separate them. Okay? Both are in God. Now, let's go to step two. Another level. A little deeper. In order to think specifically Trinitarian thoughts about God's goodness and greatness. In other words, Christian thoughts about God. Now, these are inseparable in God. Why? Not because he's some conglomerate of attributes that he's... We don't really uh, know him personally. He's just all this stuff. No, they're inseparable exactly because he is personal. Okay? So God is not some immovable force like Plato would think, the unmoved mover. Or he's not uh, some divine substance, a simple substance, as some have described him. No, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, I want you to think of three persons. Now, I'm not talking about the Trinity at this point. Think of three persons. Think of an athlete. In order to understand the logic here, think of an athlete, a scientist, and an artist. Okay? Now, each of those titles tell you something about them. What do they tell you? Something about their ability, right? Their skill, what they can do, okay? But they don't tell you who they are. They don't tell you specifically for the point. They don't tell you their character, Okay, So each has their ability, but once you get to know them personally, once you get to know them a little deeper, then you get to understand the character that forms the way they, the way that they do art, the way that they do science, the way that they run or, or play sports. Okay? 
And what I'm getting at is that the character dictates ability when we're talking about persons. Okay? When we're talking about persons, character will always dictate your ability. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Right? And so it is with the artist. So it is with the scientist. Now you just think about Imagine the, the greatest scientists of this world, okay? Imagine the greatest scientists of this world, okay? He's an amazing scientist. He has great ability, but now think of him evil, right? It forms what he does with his ability, okay? God is personal. Utterly personal. Try personal. And therefore, the character of God dictates his ability. In other words, he's not some raw force. His goodness dictates his greatness. This is the that layer that I believe will give us wisdom in our knowledge and understanding of God. One is more inner to the life of God. One lays at his heart. One is one is a means and the other is the beginning and end. God's goodness is the beginning and end. The Greatness is the means to that. Okay? Another way of putting it, God's greatness is the how. God's goodness is the why. So God is great, and He will do all that He pleases, no matter what. What is it that He pleases? To do good. Okay? This is very, 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 very important because now we're going to look at what God really wants to reveal to us in all of His Word and what the Satan, what Satan wants us to be blind to. Okay? What does He want us to be in unbelief about? It's something very specific. Okay? I believe that God, that Satan is okay with us having a sovereign God. Okay? He's okay with us having a sovereign God. And sometimes we think that's the most important thing that you should know about God is that He's sovereign. In fact, when we come into this world as children, our first thoughts about God instinctively are that God is big. Okay? To be honest... We don't have trouble there. But we do have trouble believing His goodness. And that's what we see in the garden. Before we go to Genesis 3, think about it like this. For God to be God, and I know you have already thought this before, for God to be God, He has to be... Okay, y'all thought blank. Okay? 
What's your first thing? What's the first thing that you say to fill that blank? Of course, it's His greatness. That's what we instinctively think. Okay? But what about God? In order for God to be God, He has to be kind. We, that kind of doesn't feel right. Okay? Instinctively. Okay? Now, let's go to Genesis 3. Okay? Just real quick. If God's goodness lies at the heart of God's being, then He really did create the world to bless it with His goodness. The creation account makes sense. Creation was the overflow of His goodness. It means that He's always been it has always been in God to love and give life to another. Goodness. It's always been in God. Always. For eternity. He rejoices in giving life. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And that's the way that all of the testimony of Scripture shows to us. Now imagine that what lies at the heart of God is His own greatness. Okay? What kind of God would that look like? And the truth is, we all know what that would look like. We all know what that kind of God would be like. Look at the princes and kings of the earth who are enamored by their own greatness. All you have to do is look at the God of this world to see what that God would be like. I will ascend. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14. Lucifer, the son of the morning, says. But he went down to Sheol. Well, why? Because that's not what lies at the heart of God. It's not his own greatness. What is it? Well, look at the Word of God Himself, Jesus Christ, who did not glorify Himself, but received His glory from the Father. He wasn't concerned with His own greatness, and if He was, then God would not have come down in a manger as a baby. To a poor family. Okay? What is it that God wants to reveal to us in all of Scripture? The heart, the heart of God's revelation to humanity. What is it? Well, guess what? When Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, the Word of God, what gets stripped away? Greatness. And what is it? What was the proclamation? What was his message? Gospel. Good news. Good. Okay? Real quick. Now let's go to Genesis 3. 
So this is, keep in mind, the first sin. This is the, the first sin of humanity. Okay? It wasn't the first sin ever. We know what that first sin was. It was Satan. Okay? Who was concerned all about his greatness and his ascension to be like the Most High. Okay? He was concerned all about his greatness and his status. Okay? Now, Satan enters this scene by means of being a serpent to deceive Eve. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, listen to what he says. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Okay. I know that we've been here before and you've probably heard these truths before. But listen. What is it that Satan is targeting? Okay. There's a psychology of sin. Okay. There's a way of thinking that happens in temptation and sin. What is it that is the lie? Okay. Think of that. What's at the heart of this lie of Satan? Did God really say that you shall not eat of any of the fruit of any tree in the garden? Wow. That sounds like a very restrictive God. What was it? The target? His goodness. Right? And this is prototypical. This is the prototype sin. So guess what? Every other sin is a spawn. Although there's different expressions and there's different ways of temptation, but what, at the, what lies at the heart of every single sin? What is the lie that we're believing? What is it that we're in un- unbelief about? That's right. The goodness of God. Let us hold fast and pay attention lest we drift away from such a great salvation. Right? What is it that throughout the wilderness that the people of Israel had to believe and depend on God about? The promise. And so in Hebrews, we, we, we read, believe in the goodness of God. Believe in His promise. Okay? Let's, in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, and she adds, nor shall you touch it. Now, why does she add that? Doesn't that sound like it's, in her mind, an open door for Satan? Neither shall you touch it. The command that she gives, that, God, that she said that God gives, is a little bit more restrictive than what God actually gave. Now, maybe it would be wise not to not to touch it it's probably very wise but we're talking about her view of god that's what satan 
is targeting. And so here we have an open door for Satan to do his dirty work. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. No, you're getting it wrong, Eve. God is withholding something from you. He is great and you can be like him. Do you you see a pattern from the first sin of Satan to this deception? Okay, well guess what? It continues in the narrative. The psychology of sin. And it spirals down. You remember what Lamech said? Who had many wives? Lamech was concerned for his greatness. What about the Tower of Babel? What was in their minds? They wanted to build an empire to reach into God. To show off what? Their greatness. Look at our brick. And not participate with God's sharing of His goodness to cover the face of the ground of the earth. So instead of going forth and multiplying this goodness, what did they do? They were concerned about their greatness. Okay? And then we get to Abraham. Why is Abraham called the father of our faith? He's called the father of our faith because he believed the promise. That through him he would bless the earth. That he would make them a father of many nations. And look at, I mean, just think about Abraham, who had his issues. That was the man that God chose to bless. A random, normal Joe from the land of Ur. Not some mighty king or warrior. No, from this small family, from this small, meager family, he would make a great nation. Okay? We're starting to see again God's ways and what he's revealing. Who are the men that God chooses? Does he choose the noble, the strong? No. In fact, he overturns that way of thinking, right? Look at David. David, the shepherd boy, who was a man after God's own heart. He was a shepherd. It wasn't like Saul. Saul was the broad-chested guy. He was the mighty warrior. But guess what? He was the man after the world's own heart. The world who lies in the power of the evil one, who thinks like 
the evil one, who is concerned about what? Greatness. Just think about the ways of this world. What is everyone concerned about? Status. Greatness. Get that big house. A nice car. A great life. It's not so with the kingdom of God. What does God, this is a very important question, it lies central to our thinking, what should be lying central to our thinking. What does God want us to know of Him? What lies at His heart? So we are called to be believers. Believers in what? Let's go to Romans 11. calling our attention to both the severity and the goodness of God. Okay? Both the severity and the goodness of God. The people of Israel, the Jews, were in unbelief. Okay? And so they were like a branch taken out of the tree. Well, God did that so that another branch could be engrafted, the Gentiles. Okay? And he did so, all of this, so that he would make the Jews jealous so that they would be engrafted back in. Okay? Verse... Verse 11? No. Okay, yeah. Let's start in 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of your unbelief, they they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, therefore, because of this, consider the goodness and severity of God. I want you all, real quick, some represent this text as we'll see look there we should give equal attention to all of god there is a there's a truth in that but more than that you should understand the relationship of the two which is at work here there's a relationship between severity and goodness here 
Okay? Okay. Consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness. Okay? So when those who fell, those who fell, what did they not continue in? His his goodness. In other words, their unbelief was unbelief in something very specific. God's goodness. Which is... Remember, that's just one category of many attributes of God. His goodness. In other words, His promise. They did not believe the promise. So they were in unbelief. They fell away. But, get this. Get this. Why did God show severity? Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay, He's talking about the people that our branches cut off. That God has shown severity to. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed to them all to disobedience. Everyone to disobedience. Why? Why did he show severity? Why did he commit them to disobedience? That he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What are all of those attributes that he's praising right now God for? Greatness. What's the content of his mind? Mercy. Paul. And just to prove that, continue. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and amen. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the content of his mind? Through Romans 1 to this point. Now, you may uh, subtly be thinking, okay, he's now 
saying that God isn't great? No, that's not it at all. Or am I belittling, belittling God's greatness and saying these things? No, I'm putting it in, it in its place for our understanding. God's greatness is, to, is the means to this great end of showing us His goodness. Let's, let's just think real quick. What does Jesus Christ show us? Now, listen to this quote by Michael Reeves. In him we see the true meaning of love, power, wisdom, the justice, and the majesty of God. As we look at Jesus, then we will not be looking at someone other than God. Okay? He's the revelation of God. And if we see him, we see the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the glory of God. In looking at him, we will be contemplating God himself. And in fact, if we do not go to this word to know God, then all our thoughts about God, however respectful, however worshipful, or philosophically satisfying, will be nothing but idolatry. Unless we see and know God through the Son. Right? What is it that we see in Christ to be the glory of God? Jesus shows us a God where greatness is not lying at his heart. He's not trying to impress people. He's not showy like the rulers of this world. He didn't seek glory from for himself. He would not have taught that the greatest shall be the least and the least the greatest. He would not have taught that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He would not have taught the Beatitudes. The, who are the blessed of the world? Who is the blessed of the earth? Not the rich in spirit, the poor in spirit, the meek, the lowly. And this is what he had been teaching his disciples. This actually gets right, cuts right at the heart of what the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaven of Herod. The one and the same. What's the leaven? The leaven of, of unbelief. Of unbelief in what? In Mark 8, in Matthew 16. Something very specific. In His goodness. In His willingness to give of His abundance. We are lacking bread. Oh no, our Master knows that we are lacking bread. We're in trouble. Well, how would other Masters treat them? You idiots. Well, how, do, how does he teach? How does he teach them of this leaven? Remember the seven baskets of loaves that were left over from the feeding of the four thousand, and the twelve baskets of abundance left over from the feeding of the five thousand. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What are what is in the view of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Their view of God. What is the view of King Herod? What is his view of God? 
They're one and the same. It's this God who is concerned primarily with greatness. This is the leaven. 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. Why does he say that? What cuts at the root of the heart of this division in Corinth? This self, selfishness, right? What does Christ crucified teach us? To deny ourselves, right? To give of ourselves in love, Christ crucified. It, to be lowly with your brother or sister. To forgive to be kind. The weakness of God is stronger than men. What does that mean? You ever thought about that? The weakness of God is stronger than men? Does it have anything to do with the least shall be the greatest and the greatest shall be the least? And what about Corinth, with regard to speaking in tongues and the great show of these uh, works that they were doing, you know, prophecy, tongues. In other words, these showy things, what were were they concerned about? Think about it. But then Paul says, well, let me show you a better way. Love. And even if I speak with mighty tongues of angels... But if I have not love, nothing. The goodness and greatness of God. And so, what I believe lies at the heart of what we, our diet, what we should be taking in every day is gospel. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what the Lord wants. In fact, the gospel answers every heresy. It does. Because it's not just about salvation, it's about revelation. It's about knowing God, who our God is. What is your view of God? Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book, and I'm recommending it now, The Whole Christ. Well, there was a series of lectures that gave rise to the writing of that book, and I recommend those to you as well. It's about the moral controversy. They're old But he talks about this ironclad orthodoxy that infects the church. Even sovereign grace churches, reformed churches, orthodox churches, confessional churches like ours. He says this, Many of us have already discovered in our ministries that we need to turn over these matters in our mind. It is, as you may well know, a perennial danger in the Reformed churches. It is a danger that arises nowhere more than where there is a discovery over a period of years of what we call the doctrines of grace. There's a perennial danger, according to Sinclair Ferguson. And at the end of the day, we may well find that this very issues of the moral controversy, which have to do with some of the things that I'm bringing out right now, are among the most vital pastoral issues at the deepest possible level that we will ever face. 
Listen to John Owen. Unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. We hearken not to the voice of the Spirit which is given unto us that we may know the things that are freely bestowed upon us of God. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice and to be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate Communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears and what questionings are there of his good will and kindness? At the best, many think that there is no sweetness at all in God towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of Jesus' blood. It is true that that alone is the way of communication, but the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. And he wrote that during the Puritan heyday. And we would think, well, weren't they orthodox? And he said their greatest problem, that they didn't know experimentally the goodness goodness of God in the gospel. 